welcome. Um, this is case two in our podcast series of severe asthma. Uh, this patient is a 44-year-old male. Uh, he's an asthma history of moderate to severe since childhood, more than two exacerbations in the last six months. He's currently maintained an ICS LABA, a leukotriene receptor antagonist, uh, has been on, uh, on board for the last eight months. He's using intranasal corticosteroids uh, and standard rescue inhaler uh, on a PRN basis. His FEV1 is impaired at 60%, and he has significant bronchiolar reversibility of 20% that's been demonstrated. He has sinus symptoms with non-pergolent nasal discharge and fullness, and he has had allergy skin testing showing 2-plus to ragweed and 2-plus for grass. On some basic biomarkers of type 2 inflammation, he has an IgE level of 500, bloody eosinophils of 200, and pheno of 20. And can I ask you how you might approach this patient in your, in your office? Yes, well, this patient is a middle-aged male with a long-standing asthma. So he had asthma since childhood. Uh, in fact, obviously, this patient is not uh, controlled. Asthma is not controlled. He had exacerb two exacerbations and more uh, maybe in the last six months. Uh, at least uh, he had to consult, I guess, for these uh, two exacerbations. Um, uh, we know that he's atopic. He has a skin prick test that are... Uh, positive. Uh, he has a marked reversibility so, uh, to bronchodilators. So it is not only uh, can confirm the diagnosis, it's certainly more than 200 mLs as a reversibility. So we have a confirmation of the diagnosis. And even more than that, he has a, a quite significant uh, uh, residual airway obstruction with an FEV1 of 60%. So we can question in this patient uh, that he may have a fixed component maybe from his long-standing asthma or from environmental hazards or smoking or uh, many other uh, occupational uh, contacts. So I think there is certainly a marked reduction in his FEV1 for his age. Uh, so suggesting uh, some airway remodeling or at least a, a very poorly controlled asthma. Uh, if we look at the medication, uh, uh, I don't know the dose of ICS, but uh, I expect that he's probably at least on a moderate to high dose uh, with such asthma. Uh, L-leukotriene antagonists, of course, are, are an add-on medication that has, well, doesn't have a such powerful effect. There are some responders and non-responders, but usually it's uh, not making a, a major difference uh, from the study that we have up to now. It may be interesting in some atopic patients that have a, an associated rhinitis. We know that in his case, he has sinus symptom. Uh, we make a question, uh, does he have any uh, nasal polyps uh, that had to be checked um, that uh, would go with his bad uh, sinus symptoms? Um, and uh, I don't have the, how, how many, how many uh, times a day he's taking his rescue medication, but uh, I expect that at least uh, in the period of exacerbation, it's increasing significantly. It doesn't seem to be responsive to nasal corticosteroids. So uh, that may suggest that it's not only, in fact, a, an atopic problem, an allergic problem. You may have a problem of a chronic infection at this level. So that we have to consider that. So um, uh, if you look at now the biomarkers, uh, he has a high uh, level of IgE. So it's suggesting, it's confirming that he is really uh, highly atopic. Uh, his blood eosinophils are a bit borderline. In fact, uh, 
uh, of course, uh, more than 150 uh, cells by microliter are significant uh, in regard to uh, treatment, uh, potential treatments that could be acting on eosinophils. Of course, it's not very high. The, the studies have shown us that the higher, the higher are the eosinophils, the better the, these uh, patients can, can respond, for example, to treatments like biologics and so on. Uh, pheno is, in fact, still in the normal range, so not, not very high. So this patient basically uh, has a, a non-controlled, allergic, uh, borderline eosinophilic uh, severe, well, we, I think we can call him severe asthma if he had a high dose of ICS to, uh, associated to his treatment, with probably a fixed uh, component of airway obstruction as shown by his uh, very low FEV1 despite the, the medication. Um, I don't know if he has smoked, of course, that could be a cause for his uh, reduction in FEV1. And in this situation, sometimes we have what we call the asthma COPD overlap, uh, which is in fact uh, an asthmatic, a long-standing asthmatic who, for example, has been exposed to cigarette smoking or uh, some other uh, environmental uh, hazards that uh, develop in fact a fixed component of airway obstruction. Of course, in those cases, uh, we have to treat like asthma, but sometimes being a bit more uh, used more, more quickly, uh, medication that we use in, in COPD. Uh, so um, if we look at the basics uh, of treatment, we have to check uh, the adherence to the treatment. Uh, uh, we have now some comorbid conditions that are uncompletely controlled. So uh, maybe it has something else, we have to check that inhaler techniques and adherence and uh, of course understanding of his asthma and how to manage flare-ups action plan, for example, uh, have to be checked if he has one. So uh, what should we do with a patient like that? Of course, um, he's not really uh, typically eosinophilic as, as you can see, as uh, relatively, well, it's slightly increased eosinophil, but that, not that much. It's mostly an atopic subject uh, with maybe some uh, rhinosinusitis, uh, chronic rhinosinusitis, maybe not only from an allergic background. So uh, first we have to ensure, uh, apart from the basic uh, checks, we have to check if the, the dose of ICS is sufficient. So of course we have to increase to a high dose to ensure adherence to this, uh, monitor closely the control, of his asthma, try to reduce the dependence to uh, rescue medication. And uh, if it's not uh, sufficient, uh, in this case, we have to, we may consider a biologic agent. So in, looking at these biomarkers, uh, a good choice could be in fact, uh, omalizumab because he's atopic, he has a uh, high, high GE levels. Uh, blood eosinophils are not that great, but uh, anyway, uh, that would be a discussion between anti-L5 and omelizumab, but uh, uh, in regard to his current situation right now, I think omelizumab would be a choice. Um, we, we can consider also dupilumab because it's been shown that it's working also in patients that are, don't have so many eosinophils that would be extremely good candidate for anti-L5, for example. Uh, however, is if is pheno is not that high, of course, with GP. The highest are the, is the pheno, the, the better is the response usually. So it's, once again, this is a bit borderline. Um, so um, we have really in this patient initially to, if he, 
if it were if he were in my office, I, I would try maybe to check and uh, giving a high dose ICS or even a short course of oral corticosteroid. What is his best FEV1? What what can he achieve as an optimal pulmonary function? To to tell me first if he has a fixed component of airway obstruction. Uh, but also his response to his responsiveness to, to steroids. And, and then from there, uh, I think uh, uh, he would probably be a good candidate for a, a biologic agent, as I mentioned. So um, borderline case, um, in the future, maybe we'll have some drugs like tezepilumab that could be interesting in this case that are working on uh, sometime on T2 low versus T2 high uh, asthma. Uh, but for now, I think uh, the, the, the choice that I mentioned uh, would be my first uh, in this regard. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, so one of the things that um, with the sinus symptoms and the non-purulent nasal discharge and fullness with this uh, skin test uh, that are positive and him already being in some treatment with intranasal corticosteroids, uh, you know, those patients, I know a lot of allergists see a lot of these patients with that is the predominant feature. And over the years, they've been using a lot of omelizumab. I must admit, um, I have not seen that being perhaps as beneficial um, as the patient on anti-IL-5 or anti-IL-413 that meet the criteria. Um, so this is someone who I think um, would have perhaps been an anti-IgE therapy, but maybe now with different alternatives you've mentioned, anti-IL-4, IL-13, or perhaps anti-TSLP in the future, might be my go-to medication, certainly in my practice. What, what do you think about that? Yes, I think uh, this is a, another way to see that. Um, I think, of course, uh, severe sinus symptoms uh, and rhinitis. Uh, once again, it depends. Here, we don't know if he has uh, nasal polyps. Uh, of course, uh, omalizumab had uh, recently an indication for nasal polyps, but uh, from practice, the current practice, we know that sometimes it's not... Uh, that useful, in fact, sometimes for polyps, although it may work in some patients that have a significant IgE, uh, so associated IgE mechanism underlying this uh, chronic rhinosinusitis. Uh, once again, there are many phenotype or endotype in regard to sinus diseases, so we have to consider that, and sometimes we have to do some trials. But of course, uh, in a patient, for example, with a bad uh, uh, rhinosinusitis, particularly if they have polyps, uh, the results with dupilumab are quite impressive. I think it's a drug that is very interesting in this regard. Uh, there are some interesting also results with NTIL5, particularly beralizumab. Uh, of course, with the, the TSLP, maybe in the future, it will be an option. Of course, we have uh, good results recently, but we have to know slightly more, particularly in regard to the upper, uh, upper conditions. But of course, I agree with you that uh, the, this could be a nice... Uh, uh, it says that could be an opportunity, but I think once again, this is a kind of borderline case. I would expect, in fact, that we can make a trial of a, of a biologic, and we have to be careful. We have to try, the, uh, for example, if we try omelizumab, it has to be used, for example, for 14 to uh, 16 weeks, and have a very good reassessment. Does it do something? Does it help? Is it uh, as my better control, less exacerbations, uh, better control of operary uh, symptoms? And, and if it uh, doesn't work, of course, we have to switch to another drug, uh, drugs like uh, in this case, for example, dupilumab or maybe an anti-L5. 
Well, maybe just the last question on this is, you, you, you mentioned something there. How long do you think a trial of any of these biologics should be before we, we, um, we, we sort of lose faith and maybe try a different one and now that we have options? Or in fact, one of the problems about uh, omeluzumab is, of course, if you start it in non-allergy season, um, it's not really fair because it, in theory it should do perhaps a little bit better. So how long should we really give someone before we say any biologic, whether it's an anti-IgE, an anti-IL-5, uh, or uh, anti-IL-413 uh, is not working and we change perhaps to one that's a little bit more of a, uh, of a broader coverage? Yeah, your question is quite relevant because we know that in his case, for example, he's mostly allergic to ragweed and grass. So we don't have, uh, it doesn't seem to be allergic to uh, domestic uh, allergens such as uh, mite or, or animals. So of course, if we start omelizumab out of the, the pollen season, we may not see the, 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 the global effect. Uh, I don't know if the exacerbation came mostly during the summertime. I would expect that it's the case, but... Uh, yes, I agree with you that uh, the timing of the, of the trial should be uh, the, the optimal, in fact, to try to see the effects. So in this case, for example, uh, if we start a trial, for example, in October or November, uh, we would miss, in fact, the, 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 the pollen season, so we would not have the complete picture of the, uh, the efficacy of the drug. So uh, in regard to malizumab, usually we say that if we are testing for uh, around four months, we can have a good assessment of uh, uh, the effect of the drug. Uh, if it uh, doesn't do anything and we are in a good uh, situation in regard to uh, exposure, for example, uh, of course, we can stop the medication. If there is uh, an excellent effect, I think we should go on and for, for many years. Uh, if it, uh, it is a partial effect, it's not convincing, but partial effect, we may, we may prolong the, the duration of the trial. Uh, Sometimes I, I go up to... Uh, even sometime a year if there is a slightly progressive improvement. Uh, but once again, it depends of uh, the, each case. Um, if we try an NTIL-5, then it's a bit un uncertain how long should we try, try the drug. Uh, usually I, I, I try at least uh, sometime up to one year to, to see if it does something. But once again, uh, these patients should be reassessed frequently or at least uh, every, uh, uh, some see them every month, but I think at least every two, three months uh, at the minimum uh, to really see if there is uh, an improvement or at least uh, if the condition is stable or not. So uh, if there is any worsening, of course, we have to stop and try something else, uh, significant worsening. So this is how I would approach that. I, I, I totally agree. And I think this really uh, has illustrated very nicely with the case and, uh, and your comments uh, of the real treatment beyond the guidelines. Although we're both fully involved with guidelines, I think that they, they, they still need us as specialists and those specialists that are listening, uh, because if guidelines uh, worked in a, in a stepwise approach, um, I think we would be out of a job. But I think this is where we need the individualized care. And hopefully a lot of those pointers that you've brought up will really help uh, patient management and it, it, you know, all of these patients need to be individualized. Um, so again, uh, I think that hopefully has brought out a lot of teaching points. Uh, thank you very much. And please join us for uh, another of the patient cases uh, in uh, our uh, further podcasts. Thank you.